0: All right, you can turn your Bibles again to Titus chapter 1. This morning we'll be looking at verses 10 through 16. As we continue our verse-by-verse study in this wonderful letter from Paul to a man by the name of Titus who was charged with uh, basically starting the church on the island of Crete. Uh, And within the makeup of the church on the island of Crete, it would seem that there were several different local uh, churches that Titus was charged with primarily creating order in the church. And we, we have seen that he's going to do this basically two ways. He's going to appoint leaders in the churches, and then he's going to uh, essentially tell them what to teach. And so we can uh, take away from that that there needs to be order in the church, and we can know how to have order in the church. Uh, and as we'll see in our lesson this morning, that this this letter that Paul wrote nearly 2,000 years ago is just as relevant today as it was when he wrote it to this Uh, Man by the name of Titus. And it's relevant because it deals with the same kind of topics that we have to deal with uh, today. And it would seem maybe even more so than what Titus had to deal with in the first century. And so the title of our message this morning is How to Deal with False Teachers, as Paul directly addresses that in our passage this morning, verses 10 through 16. If one thing is clear from the Bible, it is that as the leadership of a nation or any kind of organization or group really goes, so goes that group. As the leaders uh, fall into sin, for example, the nation is going to follow right behind that. We see that. Uh, evidenced in the nation of Israel over and over and over, particularly in the book of Judges. That's essentially what the entire uh, book is about. As the nation falls into uh, sin, following these leaders, or due to a lack of leadership, they have, they have problems. Uh, and this, again, is illustrated throughout the history of the nation of Israel, and we see it in nations today. We see it in organizations today, uh, businesses, uh, really any, any sort of organization, this holds very true. And so obviously, it is true in the church also. And the examples of this, negative examples of this, unfortunately, are seemingly, are seemingly endless. Uh, There are horrific situations that people deal with because of a failure of leadership or leadership that goes astray in churches Uh, and uh, causes damage to people's lives that is incalculable, really. And uh, obviously, there are personal examples of it right here in our own church, I'm sure, that, that we know about. And we don't know about, problems that people are dealing with because of problems with leadership in the churches. And so Paul here, right from the very beginning of the church, is warning this man Titus about the importance of leadership and dealing with false teachers. And as I mentioned before, this this message may be even more uh, relevant today as we have so much access to information and people's teaching that is unprecedented in in the history of the world. you know Paul uh, wrote this letter and it had to travel uh, by ship or somehow to get to Titus well it's not that way anymore. We can pull out our phone and have instant access to all kinds of uh, false Information. We can also get a lot of good information from there. So it's kind of like a blessing and a curse. Speaking of Paul's letter traveling by sea, see, there it goes right there, by sea, from uh, Paul in Greece to Titus on the island of Crete. This is, as we've seen, it's a pastoral epistle. It's a little bit different than many of the other letters that Paul wrote to churches at large. This is written specifically to one person uh, who is kind of the head of the church. That's why it's called a pastoral epistle. Uh, Titus was left there on Crete, probably by, uh, definitely by Paul. Paul expressly says that I left you there to kind of to set things in order on the island of Crete. He probably wrote this between 64 and 66 after his first Roman imprisonment. We've seen, and it's about how to have order in the local church and the necessity of order in the local church as well. Uh, Titus 2:11 through 15 is one of the key passages, and we read this morning in Titus chapter 3, verses 5 through. Oh, about 7 or 4 through 7, another one of the key passages in this wonderful letter. The key principle of Titus, as we've seen, is that the church must be orderly, and this is achieved through godly leaders who teach the Word, and believers who apply this uh, truth to their lives. Last week, we really kind of just started into the text, and we... Saw, of course, that that uh, Titus was left there in Crete to set things in order, appoint elders in every city as I directed you, and uh, the second part of this creating order in the church is to teach the people what they what they needed what they need to learn, and uh, we saw some of the qualities. Of a good pastor, first off, we, we saw that he has to be faithful. Titus, obviously, is very faithful, uh, person Paul had, implicit trust in him to leave him there on an island, literally, left him on an island by himself, to take care of this situation. So obviously Paul had great trust in him. The same is true for elders. There's a great trust that is placed in people of leadership, in, in a church in particular, and it, it's standing from this side, it's kind of scary sometimes. And so it's good to be reminded uh, of the, the enormous responsibility that is given to the elder. We saw that he has to be a man, uh, which is rather controversial today in Christianity, Unfortunately, uh, in Christendom, the, even conservative Christendom, the the push is for uh, the pastor to not necessarily be a man. And, and we saw that you really have to do a lot of uh, hermeneutical gymnastics in order to get around the fact that the Bible says that the pastor... As a man in 1 Timothy 3, there are 25 references we saw to the, the maleness of the pastor. Our passage, I counted them up this week, and I don't remember in verses 5 through 9, I think there were 11 or 12 uh, references to either masculine uh, nouns, masculine adverbs, or, or adjectives describing this person who is to be the one who is to be The elder. He's to be above reproach. He can't be called out for obvious sins in his life. He's a one woman man, we saw. He keeps his house in order. And we saw that there were several things that he's not and several things that he is. And in verse 9, finally, we saw that he's devoted to the truth. He can teach believers, he can exhort them. He knows the truth of God's word, and he's able to to give it to those who are uh, under his charge within the church, and he can also contradict those who are believing or saying or teaching things that are contrary to God's word, which brings us perfectly into verse number ten. Uh, In our passage, we see that that uh, where we are in our outline of the book of Titus, that first he's going. The first order of business is to have order in the church. He's going to appoint elders. We talked about their qualifications last time, and this time we're going to get to their importance because you know we're not robots <laughs> as human beings. Sometimes we need to be. Corrected. Sometimes we do things that are wrong. And unfortunately, in the church, people who have wrong motives and, and wrong uh, ideas, wrong intentions, are gravitate towards positions of leadership. And we see this in, in really every area of life, anywhere where there is a, the potential to have influence over people, uh, power, power over people. We see it in politics. Uh, I, an obvious example. Uh, those with nefarious intentions are attracted to those kinds of positions. And Paul knows that. Paul was a, a student of human, human nature and knew exactly uh, how to counteract that. So he's trying to, to teach this to Titus as well, warn him of the problem of false. Teachers in the church in the damage that they can do to the church body. Notice, if you will, Titus 1 and verse 10. I'll read down through verse 16. It says, For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. One of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. For this reason, reprove them severely so that they may be sound in the faith, not paying attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their mind and their conscience are defiled." They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. So this morning, uh, as we look at how to deal with false teachers, we'll see their characteristics, uh, the correction that Paul uh, gives to Titus, and finally the conclusion. We begin with some of the characteristics of false teachers. Notice again, verse 9 of Titus 1, in describing some of the, the qualities of a good pastor or a good elder in a church, they need to be holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with teaching, so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. Verse 10, for, or because, There are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. So these elders that you appoint in every city, Titus, need to uh, be able to teach the word and they need to be able to understand it in such a way that they they know when others are contradicting it and you need to be able to correct them, because there are a lot of, of rebellious men, empty talkers, deceivers out there who want to take advantage of people. They know that, that uh, you give money in a church, uh, and so they're going to be attracted to that, and they're going to try to swindle people. You need to, you need to be able to watch out for this. Notice there, uh, the characteristics of these people. They're rebellious, empty talkers, and deceivers. That that word rebellious there is repeated from verse 6. If you'll remember, the elder, uh, he needs to be above reproach in verse 6. He needs to be the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. So the elder needs to be familiar with rebellion uh, and he needs to be able to, to squelch it, not only for his children, as an example to uh, those who are in the church, but also to people who could come into the church and be rebellious and try to lead people astray. That's exactly what rebellious people do. They, they have their own ideas that are counter to Scripture or different than Scripture in this context anyway, and they're going to try to lead people away with them. They're, out, they're living outside of the authority of Scripture. And they are empty talkers and deceivers. Paul warned Timothy about the same thing, 1 Timothy 1, 1.6. For some men, straying from these things, from the truths that, that Paul was telling Timothy to teach, they have turned aside to fruitless Discussion That's what it means to be uh, an empty talker, and it goes without saying that they that they need to be deceptive in this. so uh, teaching the Bible in some ways can be pretty easy. Uh, I flew with a guy this week that was, uh, he's a Christian and asked kind of like what we do in our church. And I told told him, well, we, I teach through books of the Bible. That way I don't have to come up with something to say every week. I don't know. I don't know how, how people do it. Uh, For me, even on uh, Christmas and some of our other holidays, when we have like special messages, I'm just, for half the week, I just sit there, what am I going to talk about? It's, and, and I know what the topic is. It's Christmas. I mean, how, <laughs> how hard is that? But when, uh, you know, when you're um, kind of a topical teacher, uh, it's tough. Tough to, for me, anyway, to be able to come up with, with relevant topics. But for somebody who's a deceiver, yeah, it's kind of easy. You can just come up and talk about whatever you want, and you can just kind of skip over the Bible. You know, just kind of oh, throw in a verse here and there, and, it, and it's all it's all great. And it's easy to deceive people if they don't have their Bibles and they're not paying attention to what's being said and 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 uh, taking it in, and they're just talking about. Whatever it is that they're talking about, that's what Paul is is warning about here. Empty talkers, talking about things that aren't really uh, scriptural in nature, where we need to be grounded. These are the kinds of things that that the false teachers were doing and things that that need to be watched out for. In Paul's day, uh, notice he gives another characteristic of them in verse 10. He says, especially those of the circumcision, and this is a direct reference to to Jewish people here that Paul is warning Titus about Titus of course was a Gentile we know from uh oh the book of Galatians that says that that Titus went with Paul to Jerusalem, and that there the the big topic of discussion in that day about Christianity was whether or not Believers needed to be circumcised, essentially follow the Jewish law. Do you have to be circumcised to uh, be in the family of God? Uh, that's kind of the way it had been since the time of Abraham, and so things were changing. Do we still need to uh, be circumcised? And the obvious answer from Scripture was no. And Paul gives the example of Titus here that he's a Gentile and he was not. Uh, circumcised. And so at any rate, this discussion coming from Jewish people primarily who kind of thought that they had the corner on God. That's the way it has always been, or at least been since Abraham. God told us to do these things, and we don't want to give that up. We, We know that you have to be circumcised, they thought. And you have to follow these dietary laws and these kinds of things in order to be right with God. And they didn't, uh, they were not willing to, to give up the, the kind of power and uh, the position that they had uh, over the people. And after Christ, however, God had a change, not a change of plans, but more of the plan was revealed to us. To see that it wasn't always going to be this way. God wasn't uh, sitting in heaven and thinking, oh no, what am I going to do now? Oh, okay, uh, now I'll just disregard the law and they won't have to be circumcised since they killed Jesus and this, these kinds of things. That's not what God was doing. He knew exactly what was going to take place. And he's just revealing more and more information to make it more and more obvious that God cares about the people of the world he wants all people to be saved and they are saved through trust in Christ not in doing works this is the message that peter received uh, after in acts chapter 10 uh, before Corn- before he met with cornelius and then in acts chapter 11 he relays what happens to what had happened to him <laughs> Acts chapter 11 and verse 1 says, Now the apostles and the brethren who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those who were circumcised took issue with him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. Peter then relays the the dream that he had had or the vision that he had had that God gave to him. Uh, that we like to refer to as the pigs in the blanket, uh, that it was okay to eat the pigs in the blanket, uh, God essentially says to Peter there in that vision. Uh, and, uh, and then he met with Cornelius. Cornelius and the people with him believed they received the Holy Spirit. Clearly, these people are, are being saved through trusting in Christ and what he has done, not through following a set of rules and regulations. Acts chapter 11 and verse 17, Peter says, therefore, if God gave to them the same gift as he gave to us also, after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? Notice there, there, there was one condition there that Peter points out that these Gentile people did. It wasn't that they uh, believed in Jesus and then were circumcised and then began to wash their hands ceremonially before they ate and they only ate certain food. No, that they believed. They received the Holy Spirit. He gave the same gift as he gave to us also after believing In the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. And so, uh, this was one group that Peter dealt with in Acts chapter 11. There were many groups, sometimes referred to as the Judaizers. These are the ones that Paul is warning about in Galatians chapter 2, along the same lines. People who were teaching that circumcision was required for people, uh, there's discrepancy among scholars, are they talking about uh, to be sanctified here when we're talking about circumcision, or are they talking about receiving eternal life? A person has to be circumcised in order to go to heaven when they die, Essentially, so there's kind of a, a a measure of disagreement among scholars as to what exactly is being discussed in Galatians. But Galatians chapter two, Paul uh, reiterating his the testimony of his ministry to the Galatians, so that they will believe in him. He, he is astounded that they are turning from the truth of salvation by faith alone in Christ alone, turning to another gospel, he says in verses six through nine, uh, which isn't a gospel. There's only one gospel, and that is salvation by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone, plus nothing else. Faith alone saves a person, gives a person eternal life, trusting in the Jesus of the Bible and what he did for us on the cross in his death, burial, and resurrection. The Galatians were wavering on that. Well, do we need to be circumcised too to make extra sure that we're uh, saved? No, Paul is saying an emphatic no. He writes this entire letter telling them how foolish they are being for turning away from the simplicity of the gospel. Paul says in Galatians 2 and verse 1, Then after an interval of 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along. Also, it was because of a revelation that I went up, and I submitted them to them the gospel, which I preached among the Gentiles. But I did so in private to those who were of reputation for fear that I might be running or had run in vain. So this is after Paul's uh, first missionary journey here. And he's going up to Jerusalem uh, to tell, essentially, the apostles what what he had done on this missionary journey and what he was teaching. Verse 3, "...but not even Titus, who was with me, though he was a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised, but it was because of the false brethren, secretly brought in, who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus." in order to bring us into bondage. That's what works do. They bring a a works-based salvation always brings you into bondage, into bondage to that system. Paul is warning the Galatians about this. Uh, And then he goes on to uh, say that this is coming from those who are of the circumcised. Even Peter Uh, kind of fell for it and uh, refused to eat with other people. And Paul withstood him to the face uh, in verse 11. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. Same people, that, same kinds of people that Paul is warning Titus about here. Verse 13, the rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in the presence of all, if you, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? We are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus." Even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Since by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. Paul likes to repeat himself when he's uh, on a topic. He says it there about three times. We are saved by faith alone in Christ, not by works. Not by works are we saved. We are saved by faith alone For if I rebuild what I have once destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor, for through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. For I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh I live by faith, in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. We walk the same way that we were saved, by faith, Paul is telling them. And he's warning Titus here of these people of the circumcision, the Judaizers, uh, legalists essentially. Do not uh, give them the time of day. Do not allow them into the churches. They will corrupt the gospel They will lead people astray. They will lead people into the bondage of a religious system rather than the freedom that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. And so when people do this, when people come into churches and lead them into legalism, it upsets whole families, Paul says here. This is The danger, these people need to be silenced, he says. Uh, In verse 11, these of the circumcision, the rebellious, empty talkers and deceivers, verse 11, who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. Uh, Literally, there it says, it is necessary that they be silenced because they are teaching what is not necessary is what it what it literally says there in the Greeks in the Greek they are teaching things that are not necessary what isn't necessary works they're teaching some kind of work adding it to faith alone in Christ and there are all sorts of iterations of this Uh, in our day and there as there was in Paul's day as well. Uh, Baptism is another thing that we could add on to faith alone in Jesus Christ. Does a person need to be baptized in order to go to heaven when they die? No, not according to the scriptures. We are saved alone, saved by faith alone in Christ alone and then we ought to start taking steps towards obedience one of those steps is baptism yes it is something that we, that we should be doing as believers as a testimony to those around us is it necessary to have that in order to go to heaven when you die absolutely not is circumcision necessary of course not Paul wrote entire books about that uh, the book of Galatians as we've seen. But nevertheless he's using very strong language here showing the importance of this matter. Uh, and this idea of faith alone in Christ alone. Jesus taught on the same idea. That's what he's getting at in Matthew 15 that we talked about in the communion time. Uh, It is a reminder to us of the importance of sin and where it comes from. The devil doesn't make us do it. We do it on our own. It's internal to us. And that is what is making us not be right with God. It isn't what we do externally with uh, our religious rites, if you will. Washing our hands the right way isn't going to make us right with God, it can only be done through faith and trust in what He did for us on our behalf, uh, and we don't deal with that sin through some kind of uh, works-based religion. We do it through faith and trust in uh, God and what He did for us. Um. This uh, in the NASB it says that it's upsetting whole families. Uh, it's literally the word "oikos" is there that is translated as houses in many other places, or house could possibly be a reference to house churches. Entire churches are being upset by this false teaching. That's that's kind of the idea. Churches are made up of families, of course, and so when uh, false teaching comes into a church, it causes problems for whole families, for whole churches. When in fact, by the teaching of God's word, we're supposed to be being built up together. We're supposed to be uh, kind of forming one family, forming one body, each person creating, contributing their spiritual gift and their uh, their abilities to this to this body or to this family, to build us up and make us stronger. That's exactly what Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter four, verses eleven through sixteen. That's why he gives gifts to people, particularly in that case, that the uh, the pastors, the teachers, elders are given to the church, so that they can, uh, so the people can be built up. We're not tossed here and there by every wind of doctrine. Uh, very figurative language or language that creates a good picture of what false teaching and false doctrine does in a church. It casts us onto this uh, ocean uh, that's full of waves and is disruptive and makes us sick and these kinds of things. It can, uh, obviously, problems in churches can cause very real problems for people in their lives, and we are kept from that as we stick to the scriptures and and are built up in the scriptures rather than our own thinking this is uh this has to be the way that the church operates and essentially you're going to know them by their fruits that's why he says Paul says there in verse eleven that they're that these false teachers are doing this for the sake of sordid. Gain. They're, they are in it for the gain, not for uh, not out of uh, any sense of obedience or uh, for the betterment of the people in the church, or the betterment of the church in general, uh, the the reputation of Christ in the community. No, these people, these false teachers, are in it for themselves. They're in it for. The money that's available to them, or the prestige, or the power, or some some kind of uh, perverted idea of having uh, power over people, and this kind of thing. And this is this is the way it always goes with the false teachers. You can know them by their fruits. Uh, Jesus told the apostles that himself. Uh, Paul was exactly the opposite of this. Paul preached Christ, not himself. Uh, By most accounts and and what we even see in the scriptures, there was nothing on the outside that attracted people to Paul. In fact, he he probably wasn't even that great of a speaker. In reality, uh, Apollos was a lot better at, at doing that than Paul was. But what Paul did have was the scriptures. And he did have the knowledge of Jesus Christ and he did have knowledge of salvation through faith in him. And he wasn't doing it for, for, uh, as it says here, sordid gain or uh, any kind of greed and that kind of thing. And and notice this is repeated also from verse 7. One of the the, uh, non-qualities of an elder, they can't be... Uh, Someone who is fond of sordid gain because that's what false teachers are. So Paul is getting to the kind of the characteristics of the of uh, false teachers and saying that the teachers that you appoint in the churches can't be like these people. They can't be rebellious. They can't be greedy because that's exactly what the false teachers are. And they're going to lead people astray. Uh, for their own gain, and oftentimes false teachers are brought low uh, by their by their sin, by their the folly that they're engaging in, and it's a warning to us that we we ought to be able to know as people in the church, we ought to be able to see this and realize this and nip it in the bud before it even starts. Uh, and so, people will come to try to get into a position in a church for all the reasons that people uh, seek fame in the world for money power the the position in this kind of this kind of thing, which is kind of silly in a, <laughs> in a church like ours but i 'm not sure if you 've noticed, but there are other churches out there that are a lot bigger than ours uh, and where they they actually have some kind of uh, Position. Again, I mentioned the Hillsong documentary uh, a, a, a couple of times. I would highly recommend, there are a couple of them, I'd highly recommend watching both of those for, for a wonderful example of false teachers and the problems that will arise in a church when they are allowed to, allowed to flourish they're in it these people were in it for the money for the fame for the position for the power exactly precisely what paul is warning about here in the book of titus on a grand scale and they they fell very much uh very prominently and very publicly as they were known by their fruits but paul here has a correction for Titus, something that he can do to prevent this problem. Titus 1.12, it says, "...one of themselves, a prophet of their own, said Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. For this reason, reprove them severely, so that they may be sound in the faith, not paying attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth." Paul certainly is not politically correct here in verse 12 and verse 13 when he recognizes that this testimony that has been made about the Cretans is actually true. So the the, the first uh, way to correct false teachers and the problems that they bring into churches is to recognize the problem. Recognize that there is a problem as Paul does here. Verse 12, he says, One of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Most scholars uh, pin this on a man by the name of Epimenides, who was uh, is a, this quote is attributed to. And notice that Paul, Paul uh, agrees with this. This testimony is true. They are liars. They are evil beasts. They are lazy gluttons. Was, uh, this was so well known in the ancient times that, that to lie, they had, a, they had a, a special word for it. It was to Cretanize, was to lie. And so they were, we even, have you ever heard of the term a Cretan? Ah, that guy's a Cretan. Yeah, that's, that's where this comes from. The The, cretin, the people of Crete or Cretans were known for being uh, liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. And that's exactly what false teachers are. They're liars. They're deceptive. They teach false doctrine. We can know this from the scriptures. That's why the Bereans are praised for going back to the scriptures to make sure that the things they were being taught were true. That uh, that ought to be motivation for all of us, every day, go back to the scriptures. Make sure the, thing I'm, the things I'm saying are true or any person that you're listening to because false teachers are going to be liars. They're evil beasts. Jesus referred to them as wolves in sheep's clothing. Wolves are not nice. <laughs> wolves are extremely destructive, very much like false teachers are. Matthew 7.15, Jesus said that, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits, he says. Uh, The Cretans were lazy gluttons. Uh, They wanted to be paid for something they're not doing. A glutton is someone who's greedy and, and always wanting to feed himself, but he's lazy. The Cretans are, according to this, So they want to do nothing and get paid for it. Oh, what are false teachers? They're pretending to be a teacher of God's word, but it's false. So they're not even doing the thing that they say they're doing. And they're doing it for sordid gain. And so in in doing this, Paul is, is warning Titus about who Cretans are. They're probably going to be attracted to this kind of a person because that's who they are. And so he's telling them to, telling Titus to warn them about this. Watch out for this because they're, they're going to be susceptible to this. And we could spend a whole litany of time on, on that kind of thing. Uh, there's, we all have our own tendencies towards sin and, and we can be attracted to that. We need to watch out for it. Don't just pretend as if it doesn't exist. Understand it and try to keep yourself from that. And so in verse 13, uh, Paul tells Titus to reprove them. That's an imperative, a command, the first command in this book. Reprove the Cretans. Make sure they are not falling for this false doctrine. Correct those who need correcting. Going back to verse 9, refute those who contradict. That's the whole role of the elder. He needs to be able to do this. And then finally, they need to disregard the false teaching. Verse 14, not paying attention to Jewish myths and, and commandments of men who turn away from the truth. Don't pay attention to it if you're being led astray. And we, we again, live in a time where this is perhaps more true than it was even in Paul's day because we have so much access to so much information and so much of it is not good. (laughs) So we need to be even more careful about what we're paying to, uh, paying attention to. I don't, I don't think we have kind of the same problems that they did in those days, the Jewish myths that, that uh, Paul is referring to, Jewish myths such as Jesus uh, isn't the Messiah, a Jewish myth perhaps that, oh, you have to be circumcised in order to be right with God. Uh, we know from the Gospels, another myth that was made up in that time by the Jewish people was that uh, the apostles came and stole the body. And I saw a title of a video, or maybe it's the title of a book. I'm not sure, but it it is very it is a very good title and a very telling question: Who moved the stone? People had, under pain of death. There was a Roman soldier standing there with a, a sword or a spear or something, with orders to kill anyone who came and and tried to move that stone. Who who moved the stone to get Jesus? out of the grave because it is known that he wasn't in the grain in, in the grave anymore. That's a myth. Don't pay attention to myths. Don't pay attention to the commandments of men, legalism being added to, uh, uh, salvation by faith alone, adding anything onto that, going to the right church, being the right denomination, uh, you name it, anything. Oh, that person uh, drinks. They certainly can't be a Christian. That person uh, wears the wrong clothes. They certainly, uh, a Christian would never do that. A Christian would never commit X, Y, or Z sin. All of that is being added onto salvation by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. Does God expect us does God desire for us as Christians to live in obedience to His Word and to have certain standards in our lives as Christians? Yes, He does. He absolutely does. He absolutely has a desire for us to be holy because He is holy. But doing those things does not save us. Faith alone in Christ alone saves us. So we need to disregard the false teaching. And then finally, we have the conclusion in verses 15 and 16. Paul says to Titus, to the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their mind and their conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but by their deeds, they deny him being detestable and disobedient and worthless. For any good deed. This could be kind of a confusing statement here. What exactly is Paul saying? I try to break it down here for us to the pure, all things are pure, as a reference to uh, believers, believers in Christ. They, they are the pure, and all things are made pure to them. That's what happened to Peter in Acts chapter 10 beginning in verse 9. It says there in the same uh, interaction with Cornelius, Acts 10 in verse 9, on the next day, as they were on their way and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray, but he became hungry and was desiring to eat. But while they were making preparations, he fell into a trance and he saw the sky opened up And an object like a great sheet coming down, lowered by four corners to the ground, and there were in it all kinds of four-footed animals and crawling creatures of the earth and birds of the air. A voice came to him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything unholy and unclean. Again, a voice came to him a second time, what God has cleansed no longer consider unholy. This happened three times and immediately the object was taken up. Peter was purer. He had believed in Christ, and so God is showing him here that all things are now pure to you. Paul had a very similar discussion with the Colossians in Colossians 2:13 through23 uh, where he is kind of condemning the legalism of keeping certain festivals not doing other things, do this, do that, don't do this, don't do that, this kind of idea. Uh, And he sums it up by saying, verse 23, these are matters which have to be sure the appearance of wisdom and self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. All of those kinds of rules and regulations, not only do they not save you, but they are of no value against fleshly indulgence. They're of no value to you in your, in your sanctification in the second uh, phase of your salvation. After you believe, uh, you are justified in the middle tense or the, the present tense, sanctification you are being delivered from the power of sin in your life. Guess what? Washing your hands uh, a certain way, eating certain foods, uh, all of those kinds of uh, legalistic things. They don't do anything for you in first phase, justification, or second phase. Walking with the Lord. That certainly doesn't do anything for you in glorification when we will be uh, uh, resurrected or raptured, whichever one comes first, uh, to be with the Lord. None of those legalistic things have any impact on that. This entire uh, section here, verses 10-16, through 16, is a great warning about adding works to salvation. And, and you can add uh, anything you want there. The, the question in Paul's day was circumcision. In our day... It's uh, baptism, being the right denomination, uh, doing sacraments like uh, taking communion. Not that uh, communion is an ordinance for us. It's not a sacrament. That's kind of a a Catholic thing. Uh, Another thing that Catholics believe in, being buried in the right cemetery. Now, how does that work? How do I have any control over that? You're telling me I could be the perfect Catholic and then die and get buried in the wrong place, and I'm not going to heaven when I die. That's uh that's a little scary to say the least. How about we just trust in Christ for our salvation as the scriptures tell us? That would be a lot more of a of a sure thing. Faith plus nothing is what the scriptures say. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. Acts 16. 31. And so uh, that's what he's getting at here with to the pure. All things are pure. As believers, we don't have to be concerned with eating certain things or not eating certain things. They're all pure to us. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving... He, we don't even have to interpret that. He tells us who he's referring to. He's dividing the world into two groups of people, saved and unsaved. To the pure, all things are pure. To the unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their mind and their conscience are defiled. Their works can't save them. None of those, to the unbelieving, the problem isn't the outside, the problem is the inside. And the things that you do on the outside don't fix the things on the inside only faith, only something that you do on the inside, believing or trust, fixes what is on the inside. Those external things cannot fix that problem. That's Titus 3 5 through 7. Not by works, but by the work of God are we saved, and we are cleansed. Our conscience is cleansed by our faith. Romans 8 15 through 16, For you, uh, Paul says, For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. Something goes on in our brains to communicate to us that we are the children of God. And that happens by faith in him, not by faith. External things that we are doing. So the false teachers, they seem good on the outside. They profess to know God, but by their deeds, they deny Him. The external works uh, essentially prove nothing. That's Matthew 7, verses 15 through 23, when when uh, Jesus is talking about the people who come to him, hey, did, we healed people, we prophesied in your name, Lord, we did all these things for you. Jesus says, depart from me, I never knew you. You have to know God through faith in Jesus Christ before you can do anything for him. And uh, this kind of gets down to human good versus Godly behavior, essentially, yes, unsaved people can do quote unquote good things, but they are of no value uh, to God because they're done in, in our own strength. We can do good things that are of no value to God if they're done in the wrong motive for the wrong purpose and this kind of things, because after all, our works are as filthy rags, according to Isaiah 64 we are not saved by our works. We are saved for the purpose of good works. That's Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. So even though these uh, don't be fooled by the people who know all the, the Christianese, if you will, they profess to know God, you will know them by their deeds. If they, if they give the appearance that they're kind of in this thing for the money they're in it for the position, that's probably a good indication that they are, that they are not uh, a, a sound teacher and one to be avoided, one to be silenced, as Paul says here. So how to deal with false teachers? First of all, you have to know their, their characteristics. If they're teaching something that is contrary to the Scriptures and and 99 times out of 100 at least, it is some kind of works-based salvation. Adding something onto faith alone, in Christ alone. And in order to correct them, you have to know who they are and you have to call them out. Don't be worried about uh, being canceled in this regard. Know, Know what a teacher ought to be teaching and call out those who are not. And if we do that... Uh, the Lord will be pleased in that. It is so necessary for the church to be orderly. First, it has to have uh, good teachers and the people. If you notice in this, there there is a lot of responsibility for not just the leaders of the churches, but for the people in the church. How is the leader going to be held accountable if the people don't know what they're supposed to know? The burden is on on you as the congregant as well. And so with that, let's ask the Lord for some help in this regard. Let's go to him in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this letter that Paul wrote to Titus so many years ago that is still so relevant for us today. We thank you for revealing these truths to us so that we can uh, walk in harmony and fellowship with you. I just pray that you would go with us in the days to come, that we would be stayed upon your word, that we would be stayed upon the truth of salvation by faith alone in Christ alone, and that we would walk uh, by faith in you each moment of the day. I thank you for the forgiveness of sins that we have. Uh, Because of what Christ has done for us, that doesn't just save us and and allow us to go into heaven, but it allows us to have fellowship with you day by day. And I just pray that you would uh, bring those things to our minds that separate us from you and and help us to, to confess them to you, knowing that you are just and you're faithful and that you will forgive us. I just pray that we would be a church that is in close fellowship with you as as a whole body and as individuals. And we just pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.